So I think we'll get started. Thank you very much for uh, coming along this evening. Let me introduce myself. I'm Martin Knapp. I'm going to chair the session this evening. Uh, I'm a professor of social policy here at the LSE, and I direct the Personal Social Services Research Unit, where we do lots of work in the area of long-term care and mental health, and now lots of work on dementia. Uh, And I also direct uh, a national research school, and I'll come back to that a bit later on, because one of the presentations we're going to hear tonight uh, is from research funded through that school. So uh, we're here, just in case you're in the wrong room. Uh, This is a a session uh, called Understanding Dementia Through Art and Literature. Uh, And this is part of the LSE's uh, festival. You'll have given one of these if you haven't seen one before. Um, The LSE's sixth Space for Thought festival, literary festival, which is taking place all of this week. Uh, And the theme this year is Reflections, which uh, suits our topic very well tonight. So what we're going to do, we've got three presentations, two speakers for one of them. uh, And I'm going to, I think I'll introduce them uh, one by one as we get to the sessions. Uh, the speakers sitting there so they can see the screen for other presenters. Um, what we're going to do, we'll go through the three presentations very quickly. We won't take questions after each one because that just breaks things up a bit, but we'll make sure there's plenty of time for questions uh, in the panel session afterwards. The speakers will be here. Um, when you get to the panel session, I'm going to ask you to be pretty brief. There's lots of people here tonight, uh, so we don't Really, it would be great to have more lectures tonight, but we don't really need more lectures in the panel session. So uh, quick questions from you will be really good at that point. Um, if you haven't already done so, you might want to uh, switch your phone to silent. We used to say turn it off, but you might want to tweet. Uh, and if you're going to use uh, Twitter, the hashtag is hash LSE Lit Fest. She's probably up there. Yes, it's up there. Um, so uh, you could pretend to be doing that and emailing your mum, I don't mind. But, uh, but anyway, do turn it to silence, please, uh, so it's not disruptive. Um, and then uh, if there is an emergency, just to say there are two, in this building, there are two sounds that you might hear, by my notes especially. One is... Um, an evacuate sound, and another is an alert sound. So uh, if either of those happens, which I think is highly unlikely, uh, I have the instructions here, and we have lots of stewards who will help us in the event of that uh, happening. So I'm going to um, introduce then our first speakers, and we have two speakers for this uh, first uh, presentation. Uh, Justin Schneider. Uh, who's Professor of Mental Health and Social Care at the University of Nottingham. Uh, And before uh, moving to Nottingham, uh, Justine was Senior Lecturer at the University of Durham, working in the Centre of Applied Social Studies. Uh, And she was also a non-executive director of County Durham and Darlington Priority Services NHS Trust. So she's uh, worked uh, around the area of care and uh, particularly in dementia from a number of different perspectives. Um, She carries out research in lots of areas, uh, and I know some of her work very well. She's particular expertise in mental health service evaluation, carers, care homes, costs and supported employment and currently doing lots of work on dementia and staff development. Um, She's exploring innovative approaches to knowledge exchange in dementia care which we'll hear more about in a moment. Uh, And Justine's co-presenter is Tanya Myers who is an actress, writer and co-artistic director of Meeting Ground Theatre Company. Um, As an actress she's appeared in lots of things, I'm sure you'll recognise her when she comes up here. Uh, National theatre appearances include Glamour, Demon Lovers, Sunday's Children, Touched, Crimes of Passion and Be My Baby. Um, She has lots of international performances. Uh, She is going to talk when we get to the session about uh, the 
play that she's written, uh, which we'll hear more about in a moment. You may have seen her on TV and various things like Coronation Street, Heartbeats, The Bill, Emmerdale and various other things. So lots and lots of things um, that both of the speakers for the first session uh, introduce. Um, I want to just say something that I have a link to each of the three speakers. They may not know it, but I have a link to them. Um, and with, I don't, Tanya I haven't met before. Justine and I used to work together in the PSSRU at Kent, uh, and I had the great pleasure of being her supervisor for a PhD thesis, which is wonderful, but not on dementia. So with that, I'm going to hand over to Justine and Tanya. I'm going to come and take the stage. So, could I have my PowerPoint slides, please? You want to put them up? You want me to do it myself? Okay. Ah, wonderful. Thank you. Um, right, so this is a story about how a fairly conventional piece of research was turned into a play. Uh, we were commissioned to uh, study unqualified personnel working in the NHS were called healthcare assistants. These people, who are known as HCAs, make up about 50% of most hospital workforces nowadays. And so with the full cooperation of one NHS trust, we recruited three ethnographers to work both as researchers and as HCAs. These people were added to the rotors and they worked part-time doing what we call participant observation. The questions they were asked to explore were what motivates staff, what obstacles to good care do they face, what do they find stressful and how do they cope, what appears to promote staff well-being, and what are the implications of these findings for person-centred care, which is the gold standard of dementia care. Now, our three recruits were all qualified social researchers. Two had master's degrees, and Simon had completed an ethnographic study for his PhD. Since then, Kesey has gained her PhD, and Joanne is on the way to a doctorate in psychology. So this is an example of the sorts of field notes that these researchers collected, uh, the observations, the reflections, and the themes. Note the reflection, which tries to get inside the mind of the care worker. They also collected uh, interview data and focus groups. And besides that, we counted the numbers of staff on the wards. They worked on three separate wards. We looked at the roles and responsibilities of these people, staff turner and so, and so forth. So you could call this a mixed method study. The research was done in stages. First, the researchers immersed themselves in the field, writing their notes and their reflections so that these could be shared with the other two. Then they spent, two, they spent three months doing that, and then they spent two months coding their field notes together, checking the codes, and refocusing their observations. They went back into the field after that for another month. They conducted interviews with a total of about 30 people and held some focus groups. So this slide came from one of the focus groups, and it gives you an idea of how the researcher was trying to find out what made an effective healthcare assistant. And here the healthcare assistants tell us that they regard a patient as deserving of respect, just as they were somebody's relative. One of the exciting things about participant observation like this, it helps us to see the everyday in a new light. And this is an example of the sort of reflections that the researchers were able to make, abstracting from their experience and understanding a little bit more about the healthcare environment. 
So we wrote up our report, and in the usual way of these academic studies, we published our papers over a period of time. But we felt that we had much more to do. We weren't happy with the publications for three reasons. We felt that we had masses of rich insights from our field work that were not conveyed in conventional academic formats. And there was no assurance that people like the healthcare assistants would ever read these. Secondly, um, we felt that the healthcare, the publication process is slow, but it doesn't really lead to healthcare reform in most cases. But most importantly, we felt we had a duty to the people whom we'd have been observing, the healthcare assistants themselves, to inform them of our findings. And we knew that they didn't read academic papers. When we tried to give them feedback sessions, they simply didn't attend. So we invested our dissemination budget in commissioning a play from Tanya Myers. For a sum which might have taken four of us to a conference in a Western European city, Tanya produced a 90-minute script entirely based on the field notes and reflections of our researchers. Her play, which you'll hear more about shortly, shows the themes that were the focus of our study, but most importantly, it holds up to the audience a three-dimensional representation of the complex dynamics of healthcare in dementia setting. Now, shortly, you'll be able to see a flyer from the play, but first, Tanya is going to tell you about the creative process that she went through. Right. I'm sure I'm not alone. I expect every single one of us in this room tonight have got some sort of connection um, with somebody who's experiencing um, the world of, of dementia. And uh, I know that when I was handed this extraordinary um, body of complex and detailed research, um, the two things that really gave me the courage to go forward to write this play, because I felt you know, it, was a, it was a huge responsibility, um, was the fact I'd been looking after my husband's uh, mother. Uh, she'd been um, living with dementia for two and a half years. And it, there was a complex area around this, also that my husband and his sister felt um, unable somehow to engage with her. And I felt that slight remove enabled me to travel that journey, an extraordinary journey for the last two and a half years of her life. Um, the other thing was that my own father, I hadn't realised, uh, he died when he was 67, he'd had five heart attacks and, and obviously had vascular dementia and I hadn't realised, you know, and I looked back and I thought I could have been so much kinder. So I felt here were two people I owed something to, you know, I wanted to pay back. Um, uh, um. The other thing was that, like Justine, I think, I had been, um, an, we, called a, we were called auxiliary nurses. I don't know if anybody else, I think everybody's too young for that, but we were given a uniform. I remember being terribly grown up, and I was 17, and I had no training, and, uh, but I felt important, you know, and I went off, and I was basically responsible for delivering care to these very vulnerable people. In one particular incident, in a, I was feeling very, very desperate. I didn't know what to do, and I took one action. That action, I felt such shame about. It made me realise, it haunted me for years, and I think it's that process of shame that made me realise without adequate support and training, when we're placed into these situa very demanding situations, I really felt I could identify with people who care for you know, people with very challenging, sometimes we call it challenging behaviour. Um, 
I think it, it is in danger of diminishing our own sense of humanity. So, okay, I'm going to now read this machine. <laughs> I can try. Um, so basically, there were promises made with the huge um, responsibility to the material that I was um, given responsibility to respond to. I was invested with trust, and I don't think Justine or our ethnographic team realised how significant this was. I was not given any remit. I was told, basically, respond to it in the way theatrically is right for you. To have that sort of open remit, I didn't have to create something worthy. So I did three promises. To create a beautiful piece of theatre. Beautiful was important to me. To touch the hearts and minds and to turn the data into theatre and explore the question of empathy. I knew who my audience was, you know, largely. And to commit to honestly and faithfully reflect the ethnographer's work. Um, I had to challenge my own fears and societal stigma towards people living with dementia and our perception of both dementia and our care workforce. So those were the three promises, really, I made. Centrally, to create a non-judgmental piece of work that would unify but also stimulate audience um, debate. That was the important part of the creative process, is that there would be post-show discussion, so whatever the work did, it would stimulate um, a, a broader um, discussion amongst people. The process, in a nutshell, uh, was like swimming, swimming in these uh, field notes. That, that was, they were poetic at source, actually. Um, and the sense of responsibility, as I said, of the voices. So for a year... Uh, I swam and emerged narratives, characters, embryonic. Um, I also dived into a plethora of personal research into neurology, geriatrics, um, and in the process discovered that there were warrens of artists already out there, social scientists, trailblazing creative therapeutic work, people like John Killick, who works, who's a poet, um, Graham Stokes, who I know Andrea you know, also knows well, um, a book called And Still the Music Plays. So suddenly there was this process of narratives becoming available to me also through other research um, through artists' work as well. The play was written uh, on a slide yeah. The play was written as a musical fugue with a layering of narratives, including the family, people living with different types of dementia, staff management, doctors, and of course centrally the HCA's uh, care assistants themselves. We had nine actors who were doubling, playing both carers and the cared for. Um, and of course that tells its own story really as there go I by the grace of and it was quite important that at times the audience was witnessing this transformation of carer to uh, cared for in, in front of them that was part of the theatrical process um, every moment in the play I, I, I'm still in wonderment of it myself actually um, is sourced from or inspired by medical or research data uh, so those familiar to the world of dementia will recognise, um, you know, throughout the whole the whole sto- narrative of the story, those mysterious heightened evening activities that we call sundowning, 
uh, questions like baffling, um, the disguising of doors behind wallpaper, tolerance to incredible noise levels, the triggering of hallucinatory sound effects, and the profound need for and significance of um, humour. Um, we made a promise, I think Justine was there with me, when we made a promise to a woman called Merle, who was um, a, a lifelong carer, really, for her husband. Um, and she said to us, was it in a radio interview or something? She mm. said to us, promise you'll give us permission to laugh. You, we, you know, otherwise we go mad. You know, everything's so sombre and, so, you know, we, it's such a heavy subject. And that was a real challenge, actually, in the writing, to, to realise that you do not somehow diminish humanity. To find the humour is somehow what makes us so incredibly extraordinary as human beings. So um, the play is, is actually very funny. I think we have one of the actresses here, actually, Anna. So um, hopefully... <laughs> you'll, yeah, you'll back me up on that. Um, so these shots from the first uh, workshop performance at Nottingham Playhouse have been captioned with themes from the research that are brought alive by the script. That workshop gained support from an invited audience of the arts community, the NHS management and funders. And when we were offered uh, the university... <coughs> Uh, theatre called Lakeside for a week at Nottingham University last summer, we decided to take the plunge and stage a full production. The project really took on a life of its own when one of the directors of nursing said that she wanted to pre-book 900 seats for healthcare assistants who she would release to see the play. Um, so basically I took on the director's role um, because I felt I had to, I, as an actress, had shifted into writer role and then felt that I couldn't relinquish the directorial, not because I was a megalomania, but actually I felt a responsibility to carry this layered vision through. Um, and as you can see here, I worked with an incredible team of designers, video, digital designers, sound composers. So this integrated pattern of work took about three years for us to find the theatre language. Nettie Scriven was the um, theatre designer, and we worked together for six months, practically on a daily basis. Um, so, I think so we can give you a taste of the show from the E-Flyer, the first of our films, please, uh, Dan or Jakob. <coughs> Is there any sound?
harness the these post-trained behaviors of humans, always on the move. And also these seems to aggregate. Aggressively. Awaiting for the doctors to reevaluate meds. Do they listen? Tell them again. two weeks um, or 15 performances to accommodate all the people who wanted to see the play in Nottingham and that included eight conference days where we were able to um, involve the healthcare assistants themselves, nearly 1,200 healthcare assistants for the full day including workshops and discussions as well as attending at the play. We had always advocated that the playwright should have absolute freedom, and we never regretted this. Um, We were advised by our artistic director, Stephen Lowe, that we shouldn't be seeking to be worthy or didactic, but that the art, um, the value, the aesthetic value of the play should be supreme. And so I wanted to share with you this review from the past chair of the East Midlands Arts Council, Francois Matarasso, um, because it was particularly gratifying. He wrote that what the play achieves in developing understanding of dementia and dementia services, it achieves because it is excellent theatre. So feedback like that and the feedback from our target audience has given us the confidence to apply to the Arts Council for England for a touring fund um, to take the show on the road this time next year. 
And just before I show you some of the audience feedback, I'd like to acknowledge the funding that we've received from the National Institute for Health Research and various organisations who helped us to get the play staged, and also, of course, the researchers on the project, Kezia, Simon and Joanne, together with my academic colleagues, Patrick Callahan, Nick Manning, Elizabeth Murphy and Rob Jones. The cast, not forgetting the cast of both the workshop performance and the main performance and the creative team. So just to close, we'd like to show you our second film, which is audience feedback from healthcare assistants. Wider society, 
being aware of what this people do. And all the issues that it raises for us. It would just be marvellous for this to have a legacy from its initial production here in Nottingham, but to go on and to be useful in other cities too. So that's very much our hope for the future. I really hope that they get the funding to push this out further because it's fantastic. Thank you very much. A wonderful, wonderful way to start. So thank you very much. So what we'll do, we'll go straight to Andrea as our second uh, presenter. Um, so we have to musical chairs here. So Andrea wants to come out. So Andrea Capstick is a lecturer in dementia studies at the University of Bradford. Uh, she's been a member of Bradford Dementia Group since 1994. Uh, she holds a doctorate in education for her work in the use of film and narrative biography in teaching dementia studies and has published on a variety of subjects, including service user involvement in dementia care education, arts-based approaches to teaching and learning and the ethics of visual research. In 2009, she conducted a pilot of the use of what is called participatory video, which you're going to tell us about, I think, with people with dementia, and has recently been awarded funded by the School for Social Care Research, which I direct, so hence my connection, uh, to extend the use of participatory video uh, to people living in long-term social care. So, uh, Andrea, over to you. Martin and uh, thank you everybody for coming. I'm really pleased to be here this evening, um, particularly because it gives me the opportunity to show a short film that I've been involved in making with uh, one of the participants in this study. Um, her name, for purposes of the research, is Nora, but uh, that's not her real name, so if I have a momentary lapse and call her by her real name, please pretend that you haven't noticed. <laughs> Um, it's been really great fun working with Nora on this, as with all the other participants. Um, and I think because the, the whole purpose of the study is about increasing social participation for people with dementia, that just the fact that Nora's film is being presented here this evening, you know, it is in itself an example of the voice of somebody who might be quite seldom heard in society. Um, having a real interface with an audience like yourselves. Participatory video um, is an approach to filmmaking that's been used in a, lot, a lot in community development projects um, and with groups in society like Disaffected Young People. Um, it's a way for people who um, might be perceived as socially marginalised in some way making films about matters that are of personal concern to them and it's about um, delegating a lot of the power that traditionally goes along with being a film writer or director to um, people whose voices are less often heard. A book uh, came out in 2012 that's uh, quite... Um, groundbreaking text in terms of pulling together a lot of the principles and applications of participatory video in one volume and the um, chapter that I wrote for that book is about how participatory video can be adapted for people who have dementia. They are a group who 
um, experience social marginalisation and a degree of social invisibility. Um, but the nature of dementia means that it would be quite difficult for most people with dementia to take part in the technical aspects of filmmaking. So one of the things that we're looking at is how we can adapt this process in such a way that the, the principles of participation are upheld without people having to be technically adept. So the things that we've aimed for are for the people involved to have a choice of the narrative direction of the film that they make, to be able to choose the images that they prefer, um, to convey the message that's most meaningful to them, and for their direct voice to be heard. So this has been an 18-month study. We're coming to the end of it now. It will finish at the end of April this year. Um, it's involved a lot of ethnographic data collection. Again, I've got a stack of ethnographic notes. I might be <laughs> getting in touch with Tanya about doing something with them. Hugely, hugely rich data. Um, it's involved 15 people with dementia who are living in long-term social care. 12 of them are women and 3 are men, and the overall age range is 76 to 99 years. The oldest participant can actually remember waving her father off uh, on the platform of Lincoln Station in 1917 when he was going to um, take part in the First World War. And the process involves each of these participants being helped to make a short film, typically five to ten minutes in length, about a subject that they have personally chosen. Nora, whose film I'm going to show this evening, um, was born in 1927 in Jarrow, on Tyneside. Um, while she was still quite young, her family moved to Tynemouth, um, on the northeast coast. She describes Tynemouth as being heaven for her. Um, and she contrasts this with Jarrow, where she was born. And she said to me on one occasion, Have you ever been to Jarrow? And I said, No. And she said, Well, don't. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it was a place where, the, you know, I mean, most people will know, I'm sure, that there was huge poverty and deprivation in that area in the 1930s when she was growing up there. Um, as in almost all the films... Nora has a huge emphasis on local history and the importance of place and place memory. Um, a book by Habib Chowdhury um, draws attention to the importance of memory for places where people have lived early in life um, and, and that these memories are retained for uh, a lot longer than some other kinds of memory in dementia. So almost all the films that we've made feature people's homes, schools, first workplaces, dance halls and cinemas, um, the places that they, they return to with, with fond memories very often. 
we um, I, when I was, I was reading Melvin's uh, book Grace and Mary and how the character um, who plays the son of the who is the son of the woman with dementia John um, uses uh, photographic histories of the area where she grew up to trigger her memories and we did very much the same and this is uh, this book's called Glimpses of Tynemouth Colour Coats and Whitley Bay and was one of the resources that we used in order to start our discussions with Nora. When you um, see the film, you'll, um, you might notice some of the things that she, she says are quite striking and um, help to shed some light on the, the ways that Nora communicates with other people and expresses herself. We'd noticed that one of the things she did very often when she couldn't remember a word or um, wasn't able to answer a question was that she'd hit herself over the knuckles um, and say, you, Nora, you fool. Um, we think that this is connected with her school days, which she does make some reference to in the film. Um, a lot of a lot of resonance again with the um, scene in um, Justine and Tanya's film, where the healthcare assistant is talking about what we owe to people who now have dementia. You know, we can tend to think that people who um, have dementia are the frailest of their generation, whereas actually I think often they're, they're the strongest. They're the people who've survived everything the first half of the 20th century through at people. Um, you know, they've survived childhood epidemics in days before the health service. They've um, funded that through their income tax and national insurance contributions throughout their entire working lives. Um, and I think we can easily overlook that debt that we owe to people. So I think... Um, I will move on now to show the film. I just wanted to say, um, in, in connection with the literature and arts theme, that um, people that we've worked with do tend to focus on very early memories. Um, it's the time when they were growing up, their first relationships, their early married life and so on, that they do focus on uh, in, out of choice quite often and there's um, beautiful lines I think in a poem by Seamus Heaney who, who uh, former poet laureate who died recently in a poem called Mint where he says my last things will be first things slipping from me yet let all things go free that have survived and it's kind of become a bit of a theme within the films that we've been involved in making with our participants. Okay, so can we uh, show the film then? Thanks. Thank you. 
volume was quite low on that in places um, you know as you can tell these are not um, sophisticated films it's a technique called digital storytelling and we've deliberately kept it as simple as possible because we're hoping that uh, when the study ends the care staff will be able to continue making um, digital stories like this with um, people that they care for so all the um, 
software that we've used is available as free downloads. Um, Photo Story 3 um, enables you to put slides into a, um, a slide show, photographs into a slideshow. We've used a program called Audacity for editing the um, participants' voice over the images. We've used Flickr and Creative Commons image banks to um, work with people to identify the pictures they preferred to put in there. And there are um, additional sound effects like the sound of the typewriter and the waves coming in um, that you can put in from uh, free sound. Sometimes you can hear, you know, you pick up bits of um, sound from the care environment in the background as well, but just kind of probably adds a bit to the uh, authenticity of the film. Okay. It's just the references there that I mentioned, and also I'm asked to um, present this disclaimer to say that what I've presented is uh, my own opinion. And not necessarily the views of the uh, School for Social Care Research or any of these other August bodies. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. So thank you very much indeed, Andrea. Um, right, we go straight on to our third presenter, who is Melvin Bragg, uh, who is an award-winning writer and broadcaster. His latest novel is Grace and Mary, which I think we're going to hear more about. Uh, his novels include The Hired Man, for which he won the Time Life Silver Pen Award, Without a City Wall, winner of the John Lewin, Llewellyn Reese Prize, and The Soldier's Return, which won the W.H. Smith Literary Award. Um, he's written several works of non-fiction as well. Uh, many of you will know him from uh, his TV and radio show, South Bank show, Start the Week, and currently In Our Time. He's president of the National Campaign for Arts, and in 1988 was made a life peer. Um, I do have a connection. It's a slightly uh, tenuous connection, but I have to... Um, this is my only time in my life I'm going to have a chance to say this, OK? So uh, Melbourne has been a prolific writer of books, fiction, non-fiction, and... Uh, screenplays, scripts. Uh, one of the scripts he wrote was for the Debussy film, directed by Ken Russell, um, and starring Oliver Reed. But I think I always like to think the real star of the film was a 12-year-old church choir boy called Martin Knapp. So, uh, <laughs> on that note... <laughs> We remember it well, Martin. <laughs> I'm uh, the amateur at this uh, feast, um, and I'm very pleased to be invited, and I enjoyed those two presentations a great deal. Um, I'll speak for about 15 minutes. 20, we were allowed 20, but it's getting on a bit, so I'll speak for about 15. Um, and the, the session is to do with literature as well as uh, the work that we've heard about and I'm standing for that. I was, as it happens, as an introduction before I get on to the points I want to make out of this novel that I've written, I was talking today and studying for the last two or three days one of the greatest pieces of literature in Western literature, uh, King Lear, uh, which I've started to study at school and, um, you know, and so on and so forth. It's a play that I've come to know very well, and um, I'm doing a programme about it, about examining King Lear, and one of the people I'm examining with is Simon Russell Beale, who's down at the National Being King Lear at the moment, and he comes from a medical family, 
His father's a doctor, his two of his sisters are doctors, his nephew's a doctor, and on and on. And part of his research uh, consisted of going into the connection of Lear's sentences uh, with the way that people with vascular dementia uh, and different sorts of dementia speak. And it's fascinating. Uh, a certain stage where Lear is going further and further into loss of various sorts, but particularly of his mind, he doesn't finish any of his sentences, for instance. There, no sentence actually finishes. He switches from one thing to another in that instant forgetfulness. Even when Cordelia is dead, an enormous thing that's happened to him, he turns to Kent and starts to chat away to him. He's forgotten that Cordelia is dead. Anybody who's had, a great, had much to do with Alzheimer's knows that that happens all the time, and so on. So all I'm saying here is that inside literature, inside the greatest literature, there the, a lot of, well, the best writers uh, were onto it uh, in ways which we can deconstruct and decode today. Not as much as now because people didn't live as to the age that they live now. Not as many did, and therefore there's not as big a sample. But one of the samples we have is an extraordinary sample, and that is a starting point for anybody interested in the literature of dementia, in my view. Um, I didn't get interested in dementia. I got interested in writing a novel. I've written a great number of novels, and a lot of them are autobiographically based. Autobiographical fiction is often regarded as like memoir. It's completely different from memoir, uh, utterly different. When you look at the early novels, I'm going to quote great figures because you know more about them, not because you want to be associated with them in any sense of quality. But early Tolstoy, Proust, Hardy, Lawrence, and so on, it's all autobiographical fiction. But they would all deny that it was a memoir, that it was an autobiography. There's a twist that goes on, and this is not the occasion to discuss it, but I've developed a, a talk on it, which uh, uh, I've written about it, and it's a, it's a transformation. If you're a novelist, it's a set of mind being a novelist. It's like being a gardener. It's like something or other that many people do. And it happens, I think, in your adolescence because of a number of combinations of things come together. You decide to be a track athlete, or you decide that making things up and writing it down is what you are actually going to do with your life. And that happened to me when I was about 15 or 16. It started to happen seriously when I was 18, and I wrote my first short story, and I knew that that's what I wanted to keep doing, and I had to find a way to make a living in order to subsidise myself, uh, which is more or less the end of my career, really. That's the story of my life. Um, uh, so I use it occasionally, and I've used it in the last series of novels, which takes us, starting with the, after the death of my father, whom I didn't know very well. He went to the war just after I was born. I didn't see him until I was seven. We lived in very straightened circumstances, the one up, one down, in a yard, and all that sort of stuff. A lavatory and a, a wash, one wash house. Uh, and my mother brought me up completely. I was an only child, and she went cleaning while he was away, and I went with her everywhere uh, to these houses which she cleaned. So she was my whole world for a start, for the start of my life. He came back and they, they worked in factories and he got a little beer house. We lived in a little flat, our first home uh, that we had. And uh, didn't really see him much, although I saw him every day, if that paradox makes any sense to you, because he's working all the time. Uh, and um, when I was 18, I went away to university in the south, we were in the north, northwest, a little Victorian town in Cumberland, 5,000 people, 12 churches, 
um, each of them very active, two factories, one for men, one for women, uh, and that was about it, really lovely. I thought it was great. Victorian. I look back at it with complete wonderment now, and it was actually a total slum. The centre of it was a classified slum. The only place I've ever seen like it in my adult life are in Karachi, as it was then called, and in the worst part of Beijing that I went to in the 80s. That was like Wickton, but I thought it was wonderful. And down that street in which we lived, Water Street, 142 houses in a street, no longer than this, there were back-to-back houses. That didn't mean there were two houses, I meant there were one house, so the wall down the middle. So there's one house there, one house there, and in the cellar there were two, what we might call flats, they weren't there. And there was TB came right down that in 1947. My mother and I both had TB. Uh, and it was the most plagued little town in Cumberland. I was going to refer to that in the soldier's return, my father coming back from war, a soldier coming back from Burma and meeting this, but it was too melodramatic, and I didn't want to be melodramatic about that. I was telling a different story. Anyway, this, came about, this book came about... The origin of the book is this, and I'll talk more about Alzheimer's. I'd had to give up writing because fiction because I wrote a novel called Remember Me, which was concerned with, as it turned out, I didn't know at the start, but it ended up with being autobiographical and ended with the death by her own hand of my first wife. It's cleaned me out, really, as a fiction writer for four or five years. I wrote non-fiction, a book about the Bible, uh, impact of the Bible, and what a big impact it had, even though I was a past Christian, not a present Christian, uh, and so on. And then I had this strange dream, which I've never had anything like it before or since. And it wasn't a dream, it was when you wake up in the morning and you're not really awake, you're not really asleep. It's like just before dawn in your mind. It's rather a pleasant sensation, actually. Uh, you must all have had it. And I began to see this woman, rather a dumpy woman, the hair parted in the middle, rather Victorian, uh, wandering around the lanes near a cottage we've had up in Cumberland that we were going to live there 40-odd years ago. And I didn't know who it was. And to cut to the chase, because this is a different subject, it, I suddenly knew who it was. It was my grandmother. A grandmother I probably met twice. A grandmother who had been sent away from the town in which I was born when, uh, in 1917, when she was a young woman. She'd been sent away to another country, to Scotland, because she'd had an illegitimate child, my mother, who was brought up fostered in the town. Uh, and a story of how my mother accommodated to the town stuck with the notion in those terrible days there were many cruel things about those days many cruel things Uh, stuck with the town got into the town, was part of the town didn't go on at school as she should have done the teacher said, went into the factory made buttonholes for the next 14 to 21 uh, and stuck it out and made herself part of that town. And the town, as it were, adopted her, or the other way around, she adopted it. It was very confusing because I later learned that everybody I thought was my uncle was not my uncle, my aunts were my aunts, my cousins were my cousins, my grandmother wasn't my real grandmother. It was a bit confusing, but by that time I was 18. Uh, And my mother told me when I was 18, you know that woman that you've met twice? And I didn't really remember it, really. She's come, Auntie Bell, She's my mother. She's your grandmother. And she never spoke about it ever again. And I never asked her ever again. But she'd got me through to the age of 18 without me being bruised by it. And now that I was a man and going away, she could tell me. 
and I sort of forgot about it. Really? Really? It hadn't impinged on my growing life, on the grid-making life of your mind, and I forgot about it and went, got around my life. And then it came back. Came up from that great 95% unexplored part of your mind, which we used to think was as dark and empty as space we once thought was dark and empty. 95% of that isn't dark and empty, it's full of stuff. And so is the stuff in here, full of stuff. I won't be alive long enough until they find out what the stuff is, but it's there, all right? And it comes up in the unconscious, it comes up in dreams, it comes up in fantasies, it comes up in confusions, it comes up in depression. It's there. And this came up there. And it came up, obviously, the point of this, I've got to it at last, is when my mother began to have dementia. When my mother was was becoming incoherent as a character, that was the time that this woman appeared in this non-dream, my grandmother. So I wanted to write a book, I wanted to write fiction again, about this woman and my mother, bring them together as they hadn't been in life, and me, somebody based on me, autobiographically based on me, which is what I did. It's quite a short book, but that's what I did. I didn't want to go and do, who, what's we call, what's, what's your life anyway, who are you? I know who I am, I don't want to go and find out who I am. Um, and so um, I wanted to imagine this grandmother figure, which I did. I knew a couple of things about her. Her mother had died when she was born. Uh, she was brought up in a little farm by her grandparents. And she'd had an illegitimate child and been a housekeeper in Scotland. Uh, and I knew everything I thought about my mother. Uh, I knew she'd been there all the time. Uh, I knew she'd never, ever... You might find this strange, but there we are. I've got to be quick, and this is the truth-telling. She never in her life paid me a compliment. She would have thought it would be softening me up. Um, she never once said she loved me, but I knew she did. And I never said that to her, but I knew I did. Uh, like nobody else, really. Uh, and then she had dementia. So I wanted to bring these two women together. So my starting point was not what we've seen so well portrayed and displayed here. It was trying to bring a, make a fiction of it. Because although I say I imagined my grandmother, and I loved imagining her, I loved imagining this girl, I loved imagining this girl born in 1898 from an illiterate uh, far, uh, farm ha- Irish farmhand and a, and a young woman. I, I loved all that, and I just wanted to make up what happened to her. It was just much more interesting, and I thought it was somehow much truer to what I was trying to do. But I also wanted to remember things that came from that sort of background that my father talked about, and his father, my grandfather. There was that background there which has been so eloquently said this evening, that the background that people of a certain age go back to all the time because the memories are freshest, they're finest, they seem to be the most restorative, they seem to be the most fertile. So I wanted to bring that in. But I also applied imagination to my mother because who was she? And this is where we come into the Alzheimer's. This most coherent person, this witty person who could cut me off at the knees more than anybody I've ever met and always made me laugh when she did it. She was beginning to be different persons. She was beginning to change so much that I recognised her now and I didn't recognise her then. But the thing that I found in my, what became a study of her, actually, what I was reminded of by those films and by the contributions from the two speakers before me, was that there's so much in common that I, in my way, I wasn't studying her to write a book. The book came out of, well, well, well. I've got something I can write about. I've got something I can fictionalise. Of course, I published it after she was dead uh, and so on, but I was just sketching away at it. 
Um, but what I wanted to do was to find out for me about how I could help. And there's lots of passages in here, but it's, I, I, you, you've listened to a lot, and I, so I won't read them out. But some of them are very funny. She was very funny and witty. And, and other times, as Leah said, she was not in her right mind. And there was that to follow. But what was, became fascinating was the time when I could, not a, the time when I could connect her with her past and mind. That triangle, there she is, there I am, and there's a past that we can both go to. Like a, like a triangle, really. The greatest past was in the 1940s, when she would be 24, 5, something like that. And I'd be 8, 9, and remembering things then. Uh, able to remember things quite acutely. Going to socials, going on outings, going to church, or being sent to church by my uncles. Uh, being in choirs, that sort of thing. And what I found studying her, as it turns out I did, although I did it as an amateur and as an amateur, was that a lot of the things that have been talked about here happened naturally there. The thing that most connected us, the two things, but the thing that most connected us was singing. And I accidentally stumbled on that. I, she had a good voice and I sang in lots of choirs when I was a kid. And when we went on outings, we always, as soon as the bus started, you were singing It's a Long Way to Tipperary. Uh, and I, we, she started to sing a song. It might have been Daisy, Daisy, which is the one I used to start the book, Give Me Your Answer Do, in case you don't know the second line. I'm half crazy is the third line, All for the Love of You is the fourth. It won't be a stylish marriage, and so it goes on. Um, now, the f- interesting thing I found about that is that we were singing it together, and I stopped at the end of the first verse. But you'd look sweet upon the seat of a bicycle made for two. And she went on. There was another verse, which I'd completely forgotten. And then there was another verse. And she went right through, let's say, four verses. Let's not exaggerate. She remembered the whole thing totally. And yet, if the nurse came in, she would have completely forgotten she'd had breakfast. And if I went out, just in the corridor or something, came back in, she said, why, why do you never come and see me? And that would, so I found a way in, and it was very exciting. And I since, and I've read about this later on, that this was people using it all over the educated world, which we've been hearing about, where people are thinking about this thing. And it's to do with profound things in our nature. It's now thought, there's a book out called The Singing Neanderthals. It's now thought that speech began in singing, not in war cries or cries of alarm that used to be thought, but in singing, like the blue whale sang, in order to carry it across the ocean. Singing carries more, far more than speech, and people would sing or hum their words, and it's, it's bitten in in a way that nothing else is. And melody carries words like nothing else. When we look at the old poets, we, back to Homer, Homer smote his blooming lyre, as Kipling said, so he sang the verses. Wordsworth speaks of singing the verses. And when we think of poetry, Seamus was quoted earlier, the, the rhythm, the thing, is to be sung. It's a singing rhythm. And that holds memory like nothing else. Now, I'm absolutely certain now that massive strides will be taken in that area to build on that. So that's one thing that I found. And it was lovely. And it really was singing. Another thing was this book, 
that you brought forward. This book of photographs. I found a book of photographs of Wickton, town in which we were both brought. My mother's brought up and so was I. And she couldn't, and I just bought it. I used to take her stuff. All, anyway, one thing I bought this book of old photographs. And she couldn't get over it the first time. She, she thought that it was, she didn't think I'd pinch it or anything. But she thought it was so valuable that how could I possibly have come by this book with all these photographs of the place she knew in detail. And watching her look at it was actually watching her live and relive her life. And that was an amazing bringing back. And that was a wonderful thing too. So those things, and they're, men- they're mentioning names. So it was an attempt to sort of cohere her, and then she would go in different directions and become different people. And that was, I never actually thought it was distressing, because maybe I was very lucky. But it was odd that she would be suddenly extraordinarily angry in a way I'd never seen her angry before. It was as if out of this great cavern that we have, there'd been anger cemented there, and suddenly an explosion had taken it into her life, and she released this anger. I'd never seen her like that before. She was uh, annoyed with other people now and then, just now and then. And she was extraordinarily polite with other people all her life. <laughs> in, the, in the room where they sat collectively, she, she would say, Why are all these old women asleep? And I said, they're not asleep, ma'am. Some of them are just... Why are they all asleep? They're not asleep, darling. They're really not asleep. I wish I hadn't brought you here. And we'll go back to your room. And um, yesterday, where's the men? Well, I don't know where the men are. There's one or two in the other room. And these, I'd never... I didn't know that person. But you can't... Because I loved her, it was just... It wasn't, wasn't more than interesting. It was her being alive. Her being herself. Another thing that happened was the living in the present. Now we're told that living in the present is perhaps the height of, well, if you, in many of the religions, many of the thought systems, living in the present, living in the now, experiencing what is precisely happening at the moment you're alive, the breath you take, living in the present is the greatest thing to attain. Because then you see your life trickling through like sand through your fingers. And she was in the present the entire time as I'm sure a great number of people in this condition are. And it's a strain if you're not. Seeing her in the present all the time was sometimes quite wonderful. It was illuminating. But trying to sort of keep up with her standing still, as it were, was extraordinary taxing. And sometimes you just felt, I can't keep up with this. This appreciation of the tree outside, the sky outside, look at that. I once took a, well, I took a lot of, a lot of times, but just to see when the daffodils came out. She loved the daffodils, and Cumberland specialises in daffodils. We could have owned daffodils, really, because uh, of Wordsworth. And it was non-stop wonder at these daffodils, wherever we went, down little roads, into the fells, down by the seaside where they swept into the seaside villages, it seems, come in from the sea, these daffodils. And every time, it was an instant joy so there's that though. What I'm trying to, and I hope getting over, is that the notion of fragmentation is true. The notion of the lack of coherence and people, as it were, coming into different strands of their life, falling into different strands, maybe falling apart, is also true in my experience. But there's joy there, and there can be happiness there. 
and there's certainly wit and there are these moments actually the most painful moments are when there's a when there's a reappearance of normality because you think oh it's going to be okay and it's normal for two or three minutes and you think well that she knows where Wickton is we're going back oh the church you know so it's fine and then he goes away again that's one thing another thing that's very painful I find and as I said I'm not talking is knowing I'd really try to work out and to imagine that's where imagination came in again and again and again it's the greatest faculty we have and that which, about which we know least when Einstein was asked what was the most important thing to him as a scientist he didn't say his teachers although he was very keen on his teacher or Newton who was the greatest he said the greatest mind I'd ever known he said imagination above all imagination Shakespeare talks about imagination, as you know, at the end of Midsummer's Night's Dream, about the thing that conjures false words and gives them a local habitation and a name. On it goes in every sphere of life, this imagination. And so I was trying to imagine what her mind was like. What I really wanted to know is whether she was in pain. And if so, what was the sort of pain? And was there any way to cope with it other than sort of being coshed with drugs, which I wasn't too keen on? But if that was the way to do it, or sometimes that was the way to do it. So the experience for me uh, was that mixture. Uh, I, I, I really haven't time to read stuff because time is, you, it's time you came in. It was that mixture. It was also very, very sad. And it was more sad than anything else. But... But the, she was still a person. <laughs> she was still bits of the person, and sometimes all the person, and then less and less of the person. The diminuendo came in, and then the fading came in, and the sort of the lull, and then the slide. That was all there. But she was still the person that I knew, uh, and the pulse never stopped. That pulse of person that I knew, and I think that's what people were finding there. And it's an extraordinary thing to have to deal with now because it's present massively. It'll grow massively. Most of us, many of us, I don't know most, a lot of us in this room are going to suffer from it. There's a lot of work being done about it at the universities, as we know. Not enough. It's still very, very under-researched. But some work is now being done on it and it's accelerating. And it does extraordinary things to people. But it needn't destroy them. And it needn't leave just bleakness, I think. If you're unlucky, if it's like, then sometimes it does. But it needn't. And I suppose part of this book is about the fact that it needn't. Thank you very much. Okay, so we get the panelists, uh, get the speakers up onto the panel here. So, um, so I'm inviting you to uh, ask your questions. I th think we have, we have uh, microphones. So, if you just indicate, if you keep your questions brief, which perhaps take three, and then get the panel to respond uh, first of all. So, questions from you, please. Hands up uh, if you want to ask a question. Um, don't be shy. There's one over here. So. Yeah, very Can I get hands for other ones while we're 
hearing the first speaker. So, over to you. I was wondering whether uh, writers and actors and other kinds of artists uh, spend their time uh, adopting other people's memories and using, well, creating other people's memories in their work. Uh, would that come out uh, at any time during uh, dementia? Okay, so let's ha- hold on to that one. We've got one here, I think. Okay, Question uh, for Melvin Bragg. I was just wondering. Can you speak? Uh, is it microphone? Is it on? Is it on? I'm not sure it's on actually. Can you just make sure? Okay, yeah, just keep it close. I, I was just wondering um, if your grandmother was able to uh, marry and have another child or children uh, after she moved to Scotland. Thanks. Okay, and third question or comment? One up here. Okay, there's two. So we do one. Yeah, let's do the one just there where you are now, and then we we'll do one more, and then we we'll go to the panel. So, um, I was just wondering if you mentioned quite a few people mentioned poetry and other literature. If anyone had experience of reading um, poetry and other kinds of literature with people with dementia, I didn't okay. get that. Okay, I didn't. I really didn't hear that. Oh, can you speak up, please? You mentioned um, a few people mentioned various poets and poems and Shakespeare, and I wondered if you have um, used poetry or read poetry with people with dementia, um, and that's from a point of view that that's what we do in our work. So, okay, and then there's one at the back, and then we'll take get the panel, give them a chance to respond. So. Um, Yeah, I work in the museum sector and there seem to be lots of parallels this evening between heritage um, and using heritage collections, particularly images and archives um, in this field. And our museum have been approached by dementia carers um, and particularly in relation to singing, interestingly, and and choral work. And I just wondered if um, anyone on the panel had any direct experience of working with museums and museum collections um, in dementia care. Okay, thank you very much. We've got four questions, uh, very different questions um, from the panel. Who would like to respond? Don't be shy. I'll go for the acting one. <laughs> and there's an actress I know in the audience as well who can chip in if, if she wants to add this. Um, just to be um, really sort of brief about it, is that all the casts that we had in the play, every single one of them had a direct experience. I mean, you know, I, I, I found it incredibly moving listening to Melvin talking about his work. And uh, the youngest performer in the, in the troupe had been a carer for her granddad for two years. And she was a young lass. She was about 19. Um, and she'd gone that journey. Anna ended up uh, the lady in the black cardigan, who you most probably saw on the screen. We were in a telephone call, and when we were developing the play, and you were looking after your dad, weren't you? And we got into this conversation at the end of a call. I said, um, might you be available to do the show? You know, so it very organically grew um, in that way. But I think, so, yes, everybody either had um, a relative who was a carer, through the medical profession or had cared or had somebody related to them very closely. So they, it brought up a lot of emotional stuff. In the rehearsal room, often it was, it was very, very emotional. But 
What's important is two things. Morris Reeves, who some of you may know, played Mr P. One thing he said was, you can't play mad. And I think you'd say the same, anybody, any actor playing King Lear, for instance. You can't play what he said. I'm repeating him verbatim. Can't play mad. Said, you have to find the reality. What Anna, I remember saying, I'm quoting you, Anna, I apologise, was that you have to find the logic. There will always be logic. So from an acting point of view, every moment that we're talking about is being in the moment. You have to source it, create it, shape it, build it, forget it. And that's a dangerous thing to do for actors. So for the actors in the piece who were playing people with dementia, it was very extremely challenging. Okay. Other panellists want to come. We've got a range of questions. Justine, do you want to say something? Yeah. Well, I, the, the question I can respond to is the one about heritage. Uh, I know there's a lot of work going on um, in different um, library services and museum services, and I was at a meeting of the Dementia Action Alliance in Nottinghamshire uh, just last week where their chief librarian brought an example of a memory bag, a Hessian carrier bag, and she'd just taken delivery of 50 bags, uh, each themed on a different subject like the seaside or childhood. And in those bags, you can borrow them. They contain things like the picture book that Andrea showed you. Perhaps the seaside book might contain a bucket and spade, some DVDs and other materials that have been put together by the library service so that carers of people with dementia can use them for reminiscence work. And now in Nottinghamshire, there are 50 of these at different libraries which can be borrowed just as you might borrow a DVD from the library. Okay. Andrew, do you want to say Yeah, I mean, not, not to be too polemic about it. I think that we've gone through a long period where we've perhaps tended to look to science for solutions to dementia and, you know, perhaps we need to start looking now more at potential for the arts um, in general. For You know, caring for people with dementia, I think, is an art rather than a science. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in, re- in relation to the specific question about poetry, I think I've perhaps read something about your study quite recently um, <laughs> a lot of, a lot of people will be familiar with John Killick's work, which involves turning the words of people with dementia into poems. Um, but I think, um, as you know, came up in the presentations, there are good reasons why people with dementia will respond to the um, rhythm of poems the, and things that they learnt perhaps at school, like, you know, everybody knows the poem about daffodils. And it's almost become kind of hardwired into people's memory so that they don't lose that. Um, we, we have an ongoing joke in our study because, you know, these rhymes don't need to be highbrow ones. We, we've got one about um, three old ladies who got locked in a lavatory <laughs> and the people keep remembering additional verses to that. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, again, it's the same. It's because of the rhyme, the rhythm... The, the tempo of the words, I think. Okay. Melvin, do you want to... Well, to answer your specific question, my grandmother didn't marry and didn't have a family. Um, and I met her smudgingly twice, I think for ten minutes each time. I, I vaguely remember them, but it's vague. And what I've found in novel writing is misremembering is the key for me. Um, and that's what happens down at 95%, which I truly believe, I know it happens down there, 
if you get if you get the memory wrong, that unleashes something else, and if you're lucky, you keep getting it wrong, and then that begins the work of imagination, which turns into a novel. If you get it right, you're in a memoir or an autobiography, which I would imagine is hell. I've never tried to write those. Getting everything right all the time would be would ruin you, wouldn't it? A week to find out whether it was a Wednesday or a Tuesday where you did that thing. Other people can do it, but I can't. So that didn't happen there. The what, one thing I'd like to add to what I said is that my mother was in an extraordinarily good hospital. It was National Health thing on the west coast of Cumbria in a town called Silith, which is eight miles from the town called Wickton, and she, Silith, she knew Silith. It was a seaside town. It was where she went for her one day. Well, she didn't go for holidays. They went out for a day and came back on, on, uh, on, on a flat cart pulled by a horse. They got off when they went up hills. And uh, she went to Silith, and so the place was on the dunes, behind the dunes in Silith, and it was quite wonderful. The, and it's worth saying this because we get so many bad reports of care homes. This was wonderful. It was the people who were employed there were local women who were caring and um, efficient and thoughtful. And so that, I want to say that because that is happening all over the country. And we are in the grip of uh, bad news. And it's as if we want to hurt ourselves. It's most curious what's going on. It's as if they've taken the place of ghost stories. Let's find somebody to scare the hell out of everybody. Ghost stories don't work anymore, so we'll find out this. This will scare the hell out of everybody. All our hospitals are terrible. Well, they're not. We all know they're all not. We all know that lots of people go... So, so she's in a, a very good hospital. Secondly, to pick up something that was said earlier, um, the things that were working for, for the people collectively were to do with the arts were to do with singing, were to do with somebody coming in and playing the piano, were to do with people coming in, local groups coming in and doing a bit of entertainment, were to do with them going, people going out to, to a little concert. I say little, I mean a small number of people going out to a concert. So it was to do with that. It was to do with um, reaching uh, the brain through uh, pleasant sensations, really, and through recognisable sensations, whether they were in sound or music or sight, that would ease in and not harm. And out of that, perhaps you could see growth, and that may be the future for the cure, which will come, I presume, sometime for Alzheimer's, uh, the healing together of it, and it, it will come out of that. The science, though, is very interesting. Uh, and these, uh, my colleagues here will know far about, more about it than I do. But it's interesting, and it's interesting the progress that is being made, particularly at vascular adventure, but that's, a, that's another subject. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, time for just two quick comments or questions. So, okay, there's two. So you're all keen now, but we've got two. <laughs> okay, so if you can just, the two in that back row, we'll do those two, and then we are going to have a reception afterwards, and the speakers can stay for a while so you have a chance to. Thank you, Martin. Um, we know that healthcare professionals are only a very, very small, tiny minority of the people who have to live with, care with, cope with dementia, and essentially that dementia and the stigmatization of dementia right across our communities and the art and literature of faith. And we know London is now very much a diasporic city, and there's huge resonance within scripture and faith and community around dementia and caring for older people. And I often worry about how our professionals and healthcare organizations actually don't have 
the connections inside our communities with churches, mosques, community organizations in order to bridge that gap. Just very quickly, Martin, the immigrant community, my parents came to this country in the 50s and 60s, actually don't have experience of people that are dying because everyone that died, died back home. And we only found that people died through telegrams. And now that where that generation is getting older and experiencing death and dying and getting older for the first time really as a community and how many of our professionals and professional institutions actually know about that and those experiences and how do they connect with that okay thank you can you pass the mic along to that okay um, you got that one this one okay. my question is it on yeah just speak up a little uh, bit Keep my it. question um i've seen things written about the way in which, and my mother was like this, of their musical abilities becoming even better than they were before, and appreciation, and the wonderful book by Oliver Sacks about, called Music Affiliate, it's wonderful about that. But the thing I haven't seen anything written about, which my, both my mother and my father-in-law experienced with dementia, was that way beyond the time when they could understand the words, uh, they could read them. So they would read the words out in a newspaper and be unable to understand them. And it seems curious that that ability to read seems to persist beyond the point where they're, where they're actually behaving like a two-year-old well before they would have been able to read. And, and why does it persist? Okay, I'm going to ask the panellists, give the panellists uh, less than a minute each. So very quickly, quick responses and any final comments, please. We need a community approach to dementia. The whole community needs to adapt to the changes that dementia is bringing. In fact, you could say that dementia is changing society. Andrea? Yeah, I mean, very much different... um, Diversity of cultures is a really important issue, I think, in terms of both the way the different cultures construct dementia, where it's not necessarily always understood as being a a disease. There are different ways of seeing dementia. Um, Also, because the the, um, population of care staff is now so... um, drawn from people who are, you know, from uh, minority ethnic groups as well. That has big impact on um, the, the understandings that uh, care staff bring to the situation as well. I've noticed the phenomenon of people uh, with dementia still reading, but I'm afraid I can't explain it. Definitely some research to be done there, I think. Uh, OK, thank you, Tanya. Um, I'm becoming more and more fascinated about how, in terms of a wider society, we are so obsessed with memory. We're, obs- we're becoming more and more obsessed with the idea of forgetting. And I'd like to, with your permission, read a quote actually from Melvin's book because I found it, um, it... It is back to this question of the imagination for me and what it is to be within the present. And underlying all of this, I think it's an incredibly important spiritual question that is facing us all no matter what you know western cultures right the way through i think there's many things to be learned also i think from other cultures but what ideally um i think what the arts have to offer is this question of the imagination and this 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 question of how do we create the present how do we create atmosphere how do we live and create qualitative experiential well experiential qualitative life and that's an, that will have an effect. It will lead the rest of us 
It will lead humanity actually out into another way of thinking and seeing and being. So if you don't mind, can I... I've, I've slightly had to paraphrase it at the beginning. It said, um, yet it was imagination that was at the crux of what we are, he thought. Yet what did we know of the imagination which could take us back to the Big Bang faster than the speed of light, which meant one could be other people in the empathy of life or theatre or fiction, which it seemed could do the most impossible thing of all, make something out of nothing. Okay. Thank you, and over to you, Melvin, for final comments. <laughs> Um, thank you for that. It's, uh, it, it, there's a little debate going on in this short book about memory and imagination, as well as the three stories, the story of the grandmother, the mother, and the son, who is in his early 70s, like myself. Um, I think we're at the beginning of a, a serious new age. These people are experts. I'm an amateur, as I said at the beginning of my talk and I'll say it again because that's the truth. But it seems to me we are at the beginning and the beginning is to do with two massive things. One is to do with the extended lifespan. I mean in just before 1914 about which a lot of us are thinking now I think the average age the average length of life of a man in this country was late 30s. Now it's late 70s. What will it be in another 50 years? We're told that there's somebody already born or just been born in this country who will live to 150. Extended lifespan is going to bring a new age of, it seems at the moment, problems, but also possibilities. And secondly, the phenomenal acceleration of technology, which is dazzling, which takes us in ways that very few people can predict and will change the way we live, maybe to an extent that we don't want and don't care to contemplate. But leaving you with, I think, the bleakest thought of all, somebody I have enormous respect for, and I like a friend of mine, Martin Rees, Lord Rees, is the Astronomer Royal, he was president of the Royal Society and is a leading astrophysicist, is calmly convinced that in about 60 or 70 years, we will be secondary as a species to a new species called robots, serious robots, that can do everything we do except they don't wear out and they don't cause problems. Now, this man is not a fantasist at all. He's hard, hard-headed, clever, careful man. And you can see it coming. And that is going to be something else to contend with. I think these two things are going neck and neck over the next 50 to 75 years. And um, I rather wish I was going to be alive to see it, but there you go. <laughs> OK, thank you very much. I've got uh, six things to say quickly at the end. Sorry, firstly, we're going to, we hope there'll be a podcast from today's event up on the LSE website, so hopefully everything, all the technology worked out's fine. Secondly, as I said, there's a reception outside, so please join us for uh, wine and nibbles. Uh, thirdly, I want to thank the LSE Literary Festival for putting us on. Fourthly, we thank Louise Gaskell and Angie Mehta, particularly, who did so much to get this uh, together. Uh, next, I want to thank you for coming along. Thank you very much indeed. And finally, thank our speakers for excellent presentations.